Real Estate Coaching Radio, starring award-winning real estate coaches and number one international best-selling authors, Tim and Julie Harris. Real Estate Coaching Radio is the nation's number one daily radio show for realtors who demand authentic, real-time coaching. Get ready for fluff-free, unfiltered, full-strength honesty about what's truly working to get you into action, helping others, and making money now in today's real estate market. Now to our hosts, Tim and Julie Harris. We're joined today by Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles star David Parnes. As the co-founder of Bond Street Partners, along with James Harris, David is making waves in the luxury real estate market in Los Angeles. With Million Dollar Listing Los Angeles premiering on November 2nd, a new private listing venture called the PLS, and a speaking engagement with Entrepreneur Magazine on the horizon, David Parnes takes some time out of his busy schedule to chat with us and share some secrets to his success. Now, let's join our host, Tim Harris. So, David, thank you very much for being my co-host and being our special guest for today's uh, podcast. I have been looking for. I always like talking to the million-dollar listing guys because you guys have a different perspective. So many of you were sort of grabbed out of obscurity and made to be famous within usually a year or two. It's always fascinating to hear because we've talked with all of you guys. Some of you guys are coaching clients. You know, it's funny to hear how much people, how some of you guys change with the success and the notoriety and becoming famous, and how others of you stay the same. I have to say, from my brief conversation with you already and with your partner, James, you guys are very humble, real people, and I appreciate the fact you haven't let the fame go to your head. So welcome to today's show. Thank you so much for having me, Tim, and, and it's a real honor and a privilege to, to be speaking with you, and uh, thank you for the, for the compliments. <laughs> so I was talking to you prior to the show, and one of the things that I find most remarkable about you and James, and really anybody who is first-generation American, is you guys came here as adults, um, and you guys have figured out a way to become not just a little bit successful, but really successful in an incredibly, really cutthroat almost. I don't like that term, but it really is cutthroat industry. And it you guys is. have done. You it guys, are, you're creating your fortunes in one generation. You guys are the living manifestation of the true American dream. I don't know if you've ever. <laughs> do you ever come across? I mean, that that must seem maybe like an overwhelming statement to make, but it's true. You know, and how? So, how, what got you? You're very kind. What got you wanted? Well, my pleasure. What got you wanting to, uh, you know, you and James, real estate, L.A., moving from England, all these types of things are things that <laughs> normal people would never have considered doing. Uh, w- what the heck were you thinking? <laughs> well, first of all, we're not normal, so that that would probably have something to do with it. Uh, and actually, it was, um, you know, in, in London, James and I grew up. We were always uh, best friends since day one. And uh, James actually moved out to L.A., um, a few years before I did, and uh, not quite sure what he was doing out here, but our background was in real estate when we were both in London. So um, James was out in L.A., the credit crisis happened at the time. I was um, rather heavily involved in commercial real estate um, for a private investor in Germany and Poland and Europe. And uh, that all went very, very sour because the credit crisis hit and the banks stopped funding and we couldn't close on deals and the whole thing basically just shut down. So I was out of a job and I had nothing to do at that point. Um, James called me and said, look, you know, I'm in LA. Why don't you move to LA? And I was like, okay, great. 
not not a bad idea. We used to come here on vacation, the sun's shining, we had a great time, but I knew that I had to really, you know, focus and, and get, you know, both of our backgrounds, like I mentioned, were in real estate, and it was always our plan to set up um, an agency together because going into real estate, having been in real estate, or should I say going back into real estate with no money and no capital, no backing, no resources, the only industry that we could really move into that didn't have high expensive barriers to entry was agency. And being, well, born salesmen, the pair of us, it kind of uh, made a lot of sense. And that's when we established Bond Street Partners. Well, so you said a couple things that are really worth repeating there. And I think everyone, not all of our listeners have real estate licenses, a lot of entrepreneurs and small business owners, which is really what truly you are. You're a small business owner. You're an entrepreneur. Um, you said something there that's really critical. I hope everyone is paying attention. The fact is, is that real estate, I can't think of another industry that you can essentially own your own business and have virtually no startup expenses aside from your own licensing. Because your inventory mm-hmm. that every business you know needs to sell is basically paid for by the sellers. You don't have to pay anything. It's just your marketing and your advertising. Your real effort comes in generating the leads to begin with. So, you know, that's a really critical thing that you said. And I also thought it was – here's an an interesting question for you. Um, Buyer agency in the U.K., uh, like in in, in the uh, the rest of the world, aside from I think Australia and Canada, there is no real mm. you know two sides to the transaction. There's just a listing agent. You basically go to the different brokers and see what they've got for sale. Buyer's agency mm-hmm. in the United States that had to be uh, a real mind bender for you when you got here. The fact that you could sell a house to a buyer and get paid. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was crucial as well because the whole issue that we faced. Um, which, which every new realtor faces, whether they come from, from London, whether they, they are local to start with, they're all faced with the same issue, and that is the competition because it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. Because there's low barriers to entry, you have more competition. It's much more fierce. It's much more severe. So, you know, James and I always knew that essentially it's, it's very much a listing-driven business as far as your ability to use listings as a platform to launch yourself put yourself out there market etc etc whereas James and I realized that like like many agents like in fact all agents out there that it's very difficult to get a listing if you don't have a track record and if you don't have a track record how are you going to get the listing and it's, it's, it's kind of um, chicken and egg so that was our biggest challenge when we first started which you're setting me up for my next question perfectly. Thank you very much, sir. So what are your three best go-to lead generators? What are the three things that if you could only do three things to generate, let's just focus on listing leads because that's what the focus of our uh, coaching company is. If you could just focus yeah. on the three things that if you could only do these three things, what would they be? Okay, so the first thing James and I did was door knocking because you don't have to have anything other than yourself to walk up to houses, literally ring on the bell and ask them if they're interested in selling their house. That is a huge, huge uh, tool and anyone can do it. You just have to have the right approach. Now, as far as that goes, it has to be done consistently in order to be effective. It's very unlikely that you can walk up the street, door knock and get a listing out of it. It has to be done continuously, week, day after day, week after week, month after month, so that people start to know who you are, they see your persistence and your perseverance, and eventually something's going to stick. So that would be my first tip. 
second. Well, let's hover there if you don't the, mind. But yeah. well, let's hover. Yes, but can yes. we hover there for a second? So, so you're going of to the, a couple things. First of all, you're knocking on the doors of some very expensive houses. You're not just knocking mm-hmm. on normal doors. You're knocking on doors of where you're going to probably have security to deal with, gates to deal with, all the rest of it. Those mm-hmm. are the types of you know doors you guys were knocking on. But you were knocking on the same doors, so you guys were essentially creating, I just to use in an old school term, a geographic farm, and the people were getting to know you from your efforts of going to their door. Is that what you were doing, basically? Exactly, exactly, exactly. It's literally just rolling up the sleeves and getting out there and doing exactly that. And we have a few funny stories, actually. I remember one time, James and I used to play rock, scissors, paper in the car as we pulled up to the top <laughs> of a street that we were about to door knock. And whoever lost, obviously, would be the person that got out and door knocked that street or that side of the street. And the other guy would just sit in the car, basically, being the driver. And uh, one time we pulled up to the Bird Street in the Hollywood Hills, where a lot of celebrities live. I know Keanu Reeves lives there, Leonardo DiCaprio. Dr. Dre and amongst others. And uh, we were new at that point. So we barely knew our way around. And uh, we pulled up to a street uh, in the Burr streets where we knew Dr. Dre lived. And <laughs> I lost the rock scissors paper so that I had to go up to Dr. Dre's house and door knock it. And Aunt James was videoing me from his cell phone, this whole thing going on. I was petrified, like literally. Anyway, I door knocked it. And no one answered. <laughs> and I ran back in the car and that was it. But we've had some very, very funny situations with door knocking. But you know what? Our first deal was through door knocking. We had a developer that we knew of that was looking for a teardown in Bel Air, like many developers were at that time. And uh, we had to go and find the deal. Obviously, being new to the market, the best way to get a, an, an exclusive deal or, or a new deal that the developer probably wouldn't have been offered on the market would be to door knock. And we actually door knocked a house in Bel Air and it worked. And uh, it was actually featured on um, season seven, our first season of million dollar listing. And we actually managed to do the deal for six and a half million dollars. Our client has since built a house and we're going to be listing it next year for around 30 something million dollars. Yeah, that's a nice little turn of events. So your first few listings specifically, those came from, if you remember, all the way back, because I know you guys have sold bazillions Mm -hmm. of houses at this point, but where did your first Mm -hmm. few listings come from? Our first few listings didn't come. The thing is, they didn't come straight away. They they were typically as a result, were as a result of um, teardowns that we sold to developers. And once we mm-hmm. sold a teardown, we would heavily market the fact that we sold it. We'd just sold flyers. We'd make sure it goes on the market as a sold property. They were typically in Bel Air. That's just where we ended up starting. Um, and uh, from that, we used that as our launch pad. And we'd be getting phone calls like from other property owners uh, within Bel Air. And they'd be like, wait a minute, I just saw your guy's flyer. And uh, you sold a 3,000 square foot house for, for six and a half million dollars as a teardown on, on half an acre. And we're like, yeah, they go, do you think you could sell our one for that? And we're like, sure, absolutely. So we went and met with them. We got the listing because they saw that we knew what we were doing and that we had actually performed on another property. And we used those properties were our first listings. And suddenly from door knocking and selling a teardown, we had all these listings in Bel Air. And we, that was our time to shine. As soon as we signed one of those listings, we knew that was our platform. We would hold 
open houses, we would put so many open house signs around the whole neighborhood because we wanted the exposure. We wanted people to see our names. We would heavily, heavily e-blast, market, um, send mailers out, um, carry on door knocking and let the other neighbors know about our new listings and really do everything that we could to grind and persevere until we sold those properties. And, and that was it, basically. That's how we started, in a nutshell. Well, it was obvious that you guys weren't from the United States, right? You know, uh, so how did you overcome yes. the fact that you, you couldn't hide it, right? So what, how did you overcome the fact that you uh, had never – like you guys went from essentially uh, into a new market, into an incredibly expensive uh, competitive market, and you guys were then uh, speaking directly to sellers that had these really multimillion-dollar properties to sell. Uh, I know some of this as, what you're, as you're talking. I know some of this is going to seem overwhelming to a lot of the listeners – because they're all going to be thinking, how did you overcome the seller's questioning as to whether or not you were experienced enough to sell their property, considering you didn't have a long track record of it? So how did you overcome that? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it was a matter of the fact that we it wasn't a long track record, but it was a good track record. At that time, mm. not a lot of teardowns had been sold. If you think back to when we really started, it was around the 2012, 2011-2012 um, year. Um, at the time, a lot of houses were being developed, but if you see the wave of new construction that's happened since then, uh, you'll realize that when sellers or potential sellers saw the prices that we were, we were achieving for, for effectively a tear-down property in their neighborhood, $6.5 million, $7 million, $8.6 million, they were like, wow, you're not just selling a tear-down, you're getting really good prices. For the sellers and the best part is that we knew we weren't only just getting a good price for the sellers it also made sense for the developer the buyer like i gave you that example because the numbers made sense because the lots the the, the land that the properties were sitting on were not maximized and that's what the developers were looking to do to create their margin they were looking to maximize the size of the house they could build on the lot and obviously list it for a lot of money and it was a great position for us to be in because these potential sellers were seeing us get phenomenal numbers for other sellers. And at the same time, our developers knew that we were getting incredible value for them as well. So it was just one of those situations whereby we didn't need a huge track record. We just needed to make sure that every property we'd sold in our, in our limited track record was exceptional and getting a very good price for the seller. Well, the other thing you guys had, and it's an intangible, because you guys had serious hustle. You guys were willing to work hard, and people that are successful can smell that in somebody else. And the, the thing that often mm -hmm. happens, especially in real estate, especially where you sell, is agents become complacent. They essentially have reached the top of their mountain, and they stop trying hard. They stop returning calls. They stop kind of working mm -hmm. like they maybe worked decades ago. And you guys had that hustle, and I think a lot of the successful people that had these multimillion-dollar properties, they themselves had to have that hustle if they, you know, at some point in their life, mm -hmm. people appreciate that. You know, game smells game, I think, at the end yeah. of the day. And I also, I also yeah. heard, you, heard you say that you guys were creating your own inventory, and that's something that everybody can do in any market. They can create their own inventory. They look for multiple opportunities to make multiple paychecks from one transaction mm -hmm. opposed to just thinking in terms of the next commission check. So that's, you know, that's, again, mm -hmm. that goes back to the fact that, it, you know, you guys are entrepreneurs. So I'm curious, what did you try that didn't work? I hear a lot of, you know, actual honesty to God, honest work that you guys were putting forth. But what did you try that mm -hmm. didn't work? Anything in particular you can laugh about now? <laughs> well, 
but it's so funny you say that, though. I, I mean, I gave you the example with the door knocking on Dr. Dre's house. He never actually opened the door. But <laughs> the reality is, I think that everything, this is, this is actually probably, for me, the most important point um, and, and something that I would have loved to have been told when I was starting out. And that is that everything we did didn't work at the beginning. Everything. So it's really about never giving up, you know, from the door knocking to the mailers, um, to everything we were doing that we could do at the beginning, that the time we would put into a client and, and nothing would come of it. Everything that we built our success on didn't work at the beginning. And the reason it started working is down to no other fact than we persevered. We didn't give up. And the more we failed, the harder we worked. And when you hit that wave, then all of that pipeline that you've built up, things just start to come together. That's typical sales, you know, when everything's going wrong and nothing's coming together and you just persevere through because that's the time that you're working the hardest. And whether you know it or not, you're building up your potential pipeline. And once something sticks, you see that that call or that house that you knocked and left your card out and spoke to the owner that said they weren't interested in selling two months before, they'll call you. You're going to get that call and they're going to say, I'm ready. I want to meet with you. I want to list my property. So really everything we did at the beginning didn't work, but then it all started to work later on. I love that answer. That's a really great answer. So what was harder than you expected? I mean, you guys have been hitting it really well for the past five or six years. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. last year your volume was huge. This year you guys are going to scratch, you know, $750 million or maybe even more. So what was harder than you expected it to be? You know what? It was just getting the first few deals under our belt. It's, it's so, so difficult. And when you see the numbers that we're, you know, we've had a fantastic year and, and, and we're having a fantastic year and we're very grateful and fortunate and, 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 and we, we consider ourselves very fortunate to be in this position. But the reality is that it just wasn't, I mean, it still isn't. You know, when you see these big numbers and you think, oh God, these guys are riding away, to a degree we are, but at the same time, we're still grinding. You know, we, I, I worked on a deal for $70 million. Um, it took one year to close it. And that was every single day on the phone for hours at a time with attorneys for both sides of the transaction, with title companies. Um, and, and that was, it was a really tricky deal. But the reality is it came off and it wasn't the only thing I was doing. Obviously, I was working on other deals as well. So when we see these big numbers, James and I have literally built up our pipeline over time. And we're working, you know, maybe five, ten deals at a time um, consistently, as well as taking on new business. And, and it's just it's really just a wave. And it's, it's, it's just not that straightforward. It, it's, it's very rare that $70 million deal or a, or, a, or a $50 million deal or a $30 million deal will just land on our lap and close just like that. What actually happens is behind the scenes is it can take many months, even years to actually get something to happen. Um, and as well as that deal, there's also another example. We actually had a, a listing which was uh, featured last season um, on Delta Drive, which is in Bel Air. And we had that listing, and it was a $40 million listing. And the seller had put a clause in the contract saying that they could cancel the contract with us with one week written notice. And, you know, it was a big listing, and we were of the mindset that, okay, fine, no problem. I mean, at the end of the day, we, we're not crazy about signing this, but we know we're going to give you the best service, and no other agent's going to be able to do what we do because we're never going to give up, and we're going to give absolutely 100% effort. 
So we listed this property and we didn't get any bites. Well, we got some bites. We held a Rolls Royce event and we, you know, we had showings there, but we yeah. didn't get any offers. I, sorry, Dave, Dave, David, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but if I remember correctly, because Julie and I, this, watching the show is one of our guilty pleasures. Didn't you get this very yes. one from basically like cold calling or knocking on the door? Or wasn't this listing basically from, it wasn't like a referral or an easy, easy listing to get you guys actually, it wasn't handed to you. Am I remembering this one correctly? This one actually came from, from a referral from another client, and he actually okay. came in to talk. He, the, the client actually came in to talk about buying some commercial real estate, but then he mentioned in conversation that he's interested in selling his house, and that's actually how it all started on this particular property. Basically, what okay, happened was, yeah, he actually canceled the listing on us after we had it for about 10 months, and we'd put a lot of time into that, and he canceled it because he said that another agent who actually sold him the house um, – had a buyer and that agent wanted to represent both sides and she would only it is very unethical by the way she'd only submit the offer if he cancelled the listing with us and basically let her represent both sides and i was like oh my god come on that that that's crazy and he was like sorry i've got to do what i got to do a week before that i had a really good showing with a direct client okay who wasn't represented by an agent and he really liked the house and i called him up i said look I'm always about being honest, open book. I don't like to play games. I like to be very, very open book because what goes around comes around and the truth always comes out at the end of the day, okay? So I said to him, the truth, I said, we're going to lose this listing and there is another buyer and this is exactly what's going on. He turned around to me and said, I don't believe you. I was like, what do you mean? I'm telling the truth. He, He goes, I don't believe you. I'm not in a rush. I've got things going on. I'm not ready to buy the property for another two months, even if I want to submit an offer. And I don't believe there's another buyer. I think that, you know, the, the, the seller's playing me. And I said, okay, what can I do? I got him on the phone with the seller and we had a long conversation and I explained, look, you have an opportunity to buy this property at a really good price because the seller's motivated right now. And knowing that there is another offer coming in, this is your chance to get the property. He, he basically said, well, I'm not ready to buy it yet. I need to lease it first. So we came up with a whole lease with an option to buy, okay, with a, with, with a big deposit that goes down. We basically managed to tie it up. It took one week of negotiating. I think the last part of the negotiation, I was in Vegas for a boys' weekend, and I was just on the phone the whole time, basically. Um, but we managed to get the escrow, okay? Um, one, one week later, after we did the inspections and lifted contingencies, okay, um, I got a call from my client, he goes, David, can you just reassure me that I've definitely got this deal? I was like, you've absolutely got this deal. This is your deal. A hundred percent. He goes, well, okay. I just want to make sure because I got a call from the seller and he said that he would pay me $2 million. But, but bear in mind, we had the deal agreed at $30 million. Okay. So we were representing both sides on a $30 million deal, which is effectively a $60 million sale for us. Okay. He said that the seller had offered him $2 million to walk away from the contract because the other buyer that didn't step up in time that was represented by the other agent really is upset that they didn't get the property and they want to pay you $2 million to walk away. He turned around to me and goes, David, I'm sorry for not believing you at the beginning. Now I know you are telling me the truth. There was another client and I want you to know that you have delivered me the house that my family will be in for the rest of our lives. And even if they offered me $10 million to walk away, I wouldn't. We closed escrow represented both sides and everyone was happy apart from obviously the other that is a hell of a story <laughs> <laughs> that should be almost be a mini movie <laughs> that's crazy it was it was it was intense but you know what there's so many lessons that i learned from that and it was just you know always be honest 
be upfront. Mm-hmm. We don't need to play games. We don't need to be superheroes at the end of the day. You know, our clients really respect what, what, what I found is when we're just honest with them. It's not about, you know, it's not about sugarcoating anything. It's not about, um, it's not about um, making things seem better than they are. It's just about delivering the truth and coming up with a solution. And that's exactly what we did. And we got a very, very good client, a very loyal client. We got a huge sale. And at the end of the day, 50% of something's better than 100% of nothing, right? <laughs> Absolutely. What, so it's, I'm curious, what are the biggest misconceptions, maybe misconceptions that uh, you had when you got, uh, started working in this uh, stratosphere price range-wise, but what are the biggest misconceptions of working with the ultra-high net worth type of person? Because someone who's buying a $30 million house is you know, not somebody who's trying to scrape together uh, the payment. So what are the biggest misconceptions of working with those types of folks? I think that it actually, in, in many ways, it, it, it can be easier a lot of the time because a lot of the time they're all cash, so you're not going to need appraisal contingencies. You can just use the comps, um, and they're going to be able to close quickly. Um, a lot of the time they're very busy people, so they don't really have the time or the want to spend a lot of time on a transaction. So they like to make everything as simple as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. and they're just normal, normal people. And all you're doing is you're dealing with properties with more zeros at the end and larger properties in good locations. And at the end of the day, a transaction is a transaction. Some of the smallest transactions I've done have proven to be more difficult than some of the largest transactions I've done and vice versa. So I really wouldn't discriminate or distinguish between ultra high net worth individuals and, 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 average people like myself and, and, and a lot of people out there because it's, 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 not, it's not too dissimilar. A transaction is still a transaction, and all the principles to do with that transaction remain the same. And Every that's why single... we are scared to enter that market. A lot of people are scared to, 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 to enter that top market because they just think, no, it's, it's not going to happen. It's, it's, too, mm-hmm. it's, too, it's too difficult to reach. But we were always the fact that, well, if other people have done it, it's proven. Do you see what I'm saying? It's proven. So, so why can't we do it? And we just went for it. And, and we were fearful. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like we were fearlessly going into this. We had fear, but we just, we just looked at, we approached it from a logical standpoint. And, and I think that's what enabled us to crack in and break into that high-end market pretty quickly. When you're talking with a seller who's selling an ultra high-end house, this is what we've heard continuously, and we know this from coaching as well. The last thing they want – they want to know that you have staff, but the last thing they want to hear about you is droning on and on about your team because they don't want to be delegated. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance mm-hmm. the fact that ultra high-end uh, sellers – you know, you have to have staff to make it so that you can do, do your thing, but at the same time, they don't want to be delegated. So how do you, how do you uh, overcome those two challenges that you need someone you know you need a team behind you a small group of people to help you do the marketing and whatnot but Mm -hmm. at the same time Mm -hmm. those folks do not want to even remotely think they're going to be delegated how do you balance that it's interesting you say that what we've done with our team a lot of people out there uh, other agents and and great good for them because it obviously works for them but i can only speak on behalf of james and my team um, we've always kept it lean and mean. There's always other mm-hmm. big teams out there that they have like 20, 30 agents after them. And, and, it's, and it's kind of just more of a, a bravado uh, display. Do you see what I mean? Because it's, it's, it's very difficult to run. You it's know, ego. A, 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 yeah, because it's, yeah. It's very, we've always kept it lean and mean. And we always want everything. We, we have the essentials. We have quality over quantity. So our team consists of myself and James, um, we have Michelle, who is 
over 25 years experience. We're very lucky to have her in the contracts and the administrative. So she does all, she's the backbone. She does our back office. She is absolutely incredible. We're very, very lucky to have her. So all of our contracts, all of our correspondence, it's all spot on. It's perfect because we're lucky to have her. So that's one person. On top of that, we have Alana, who is amazing. She helps us with the marketing and she helps us set up houses and sometimes helps us with showings and open houses to make sure that you know everything is, is, is organized as it should be. Um, and then we have a buyer's agent. And the buyer's agent, we work on with some leads. So if we get some buyer's leads, um, we will share them with the buyer agent and do the research and work that client together. And literally, that is our team. And the fact that we can close over $600 million in a year with just that team, I guess, proves that it works. And for us, that's very, very important to keep it lean and mean. And sorry to, you know, back to your question, the, the reason I'm saying this is because when you deal with these ultra high net worth individuals and they want your attention, they're not going to be, they're not going to have to speak to 20 different people. Do you see what I mean? They're not, there's, there's, there's no, there's 20, there aren't 20 people to, to delegate to. There's just us. No, I agree completely. And from our, uh, you know, in our book that we wrote, Chapter 17 basically is about profit. You know, your product at the end of the day when you're running a business is profit. And when you're running a team that has a lot of people, you're not going to make as a main person very much profit, even at $600 million. You know, most you, I'm sure you know this. Most real estate brokerages are making basically 3% profit before they pay all, you know, their expenses and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So they're not making really any money. Mm -hmm. Most big teams nowadays are barely making 10%, again, before expenses expenses and whatnot. So the fact is the big team model sounds good on paper, but when you really put pen to paper, there's not a lot of money there. And every single person mm -hmm. I've ever known or interviewed or coached uh, who sells like you guys do, they all have small teams because it, you know, they'll have staff. They leave. I was interviewing uh, Jade Mills, right? And she's, you know who she is. She's mm -hmm. in your market. And uh, you number one called yeah, she's awesome. She's beautiful, wonderful person. And she's like the she's number so one, great. I think it's Prudential or Caldwell Banker, yeah. And I asked her the team question, similar to what I just asked you, and she, you could tell she knew it was like one of these, you know, the idea of teams has almost become like a, a, a religious conversation, right, where people don't want to say, oh, you shouldn't have a team, but she paused. Uh, you know, just the same exact podcast. And then she said, I don't have a team. <laughs> she said, you know, I've never had a team. I won't I have a team. That. It's my daughter. If we have two people that basically work with us, she said, if, if I'm working with somebody who's, you know, wanting to do a high-end deal, the last thing they want to hear is that I have a team. And so a lot of yeah. people out there that are listening, they think they have to have these big, huge teams in order to be successful, and it's just not true. Matter of fact, in, no. in certain price ranges, it's going to work against you. You know, so that's kind of interesting, yeah. I think. It's, it, yeah, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate 100%. you being honest about that. So when you get this question, well, you know what? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, why not? You know, because if you're lean and mean, you don't have – you can be nimble. Like you were talking about doing mm -hmm. redevelopment deals. That's what you were talking about, creating your own inventory. Is that market still exist? Mm -hmm. is, it, is that still sure. alive and well in L.A., finding tear-down lots and building ultra-expensive houses? Very much so. Actually, I, I do it myself as well. So that's another thing that I've always done is uh, build houses and – flip houses, ground up new constructions. And it's always kind of benefited me because especially more recently, the more experience I've had, the more advice and advisory I can give to my clients um, who typically do larger ones than I do. Uh, but it, but it, it's, it's always going to be there because there's always the opportunity of sniffing out a good deal and really <laughs> unlocking the value from, the, for, from, from what it has. And, and I think that is it, are there as many opportunities as there used to be? No. 
because it's, it's, it's much more competitive and saturated at this point. Um, however, they do exist. The, the only one issue that, that, that's come into play is basically anti-mansionization laws um, and different um, laws and regulations that they've given, namely in the Hollywood Hills, in the West Hollywood Flats, and even Beverly Hills, that you can't build as much and as high as you could previously. So that's something that people are having to take into account, whereby deals that would have made sense um, a few years ago no longer make sense today because of the restrictions on what you can build. But otherwise, no, I mean, that's always going to exist. There's always going to be opportunity in any capitalist market. Um, there, there's so many houses. I mean, if you drive down the street in, in Beverly Hills or in the Hollywood Hills or West Hollywood or anywhere, you're going to see a lot of new construction. Don't get me wrong. But if you actually count the percentage of new construction on any street versus older houses, I, I've got to be honest with you, there, there are so many more older houses than the new construction houses, which, which suggests to me that even though we've seen a massive wave of development and new construction, it hasn't even really scraped the surface of, of, of relative to the amount of houses out there. Does that make sense? Oh, it totally does. And the same thing's happening um, basically in you know, Greenwich, Connecticut. Same thing's happening, as you know, probably in like Manhattan and you know, the, all these types of things. What happens is that the old product becomes so expensive to maintain and restore that you just sort of got to ask mm -hmm. yourself, does it even make sense to try to rehab it? Or, you know, so it doesn't. And, so, and, and furthermore, mm -hmm. uh, inventory, floor plans, housing styles, they become obsolete. And so the market will demand something new, and often what is demanded is in markets like yours are more, you know, larger houses. People want more luxury. That's the expectation nowadays. So yeah, I completely yeah. agree. And your market's going to continue to expand in that uh, corridor because something that's interesting that's happened since 2007 that was always true, but not true like it is now is your market has become. I'm sure you can speak to this better than I can. Has become an international place to live. You have lots of people that are buying second and third homes. Lots of um, yes. new millionaires and billionaires from around the world. And where do they buy? Of course, they're going to buy in L.A. You know, of course, they're going to buy in of Manhattan. Course. It's, yeah. Absolutely. And, and when you look, and the continuation from that point as well is basically, if you look at a lot of money coming from Asia and, and Europe, it's not just the asset play it's not just the fact that they're buying the property it's also mm -hmm. a great currency play it, you know i believe the u.s dollar is a great safe haven um yes we have our share of political instability here and whatnot but the reality is if if, if the u.s unlike many countries out there actually closed its borders to the rest of the world it would be self-sufficient and that's a very powerful position to be in so i would say that a lot of this this, this um, investment, especially in the high-end market, I'm talking super high-end, like $30 million, $20 million, $50 million, $70, $80, $100 million market, um, is also a currency play. You know, people are parking their money in the U.S. dollar rather than buy like a, a government bond or, 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 or stocks in the stock market. They're just diversifying into real estate, and that is the vehicle in which they're holding their currency. And, and, it's, and, and at the same time, it's a great one because especially in Los Angeles at this high end, you can generate amazing income by leasing these properties out, both long-term and short-term. That is the thing that is mind-boggling. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? I'm giving an actual real-life yeah, example course. because that doesn't happen any other place in the world that I know of, maybe outside of Monaco. <laughs> well, no, it's interesting because if you look, and I always look at that to see if the market's overvalued or undervalued because when you look at, rental income 
uh, and returns versus the price paid for a property, that signifies to me value. Now, when you look at London, for example, you can go to the best area of London and you can have a 1,500 square foot apartment, not even a house, an apartment, no garden, um, in one of the best locations, two bedroom, okay? That is probably going to get you about £9,000 a month income. And that apartment is going to be worth about £6 million, okay? If you take that £6 million, which is probably about, let's just do, let's just say it's about $8 million or something like that, or £6 million to $8 million, yeah. And you take an $8 million house in the US, you're going to get a far higher return. You could probably get $40,000, a month short term on that property. So for me, that represents the fact that either London is grossly overpriced or LA is grossly underpriced valued rather yeah it's crazy well and that but just to be clear that is not a phenomenon that happens in places outside of really la i mean it happens a little bit in manhattan it happens a little bit in miami but really you guys have kind of the market cornered for these really high-end yeah. uh properties being leased yeah. that's not even a phenomenon yeah. you see in very many other places now it is something you see a lot in europe as you know but you know around yeah. in the united states that's it so yeah that's that's the kind of thing that makes it so that you realize that there's so much new wealth that's being created globally, and it is migrating towards the safe havens. And as long as the U.S. remains the uh, reserve currency for the world, which it probably will for uh, at least all of our lifetimes, then uh, I think you guys yeah. are always going to have incredible opportunities. So any, here's a fun question for you. If you could speak yeah. to the David and James <laughs> from 10 years ago, eight years ago. <laughs> You know, yeah. you could you could say remembering that you know you're speaking now to over a hundred thousand agents and replay mostly, but you know over the next month or so that'll be how many listen to today's show. If you could speak to the the you back then and all these agents that are wanting to be like you, what what offer what advice would you maybe pass along to them? Something that you wish someone would have told you. And I think that it's it really comes down to the fact that, and it sounds so cliche, I almost don't want to say it, but it, but it, but it's it's the best advice that I could have heard. It's never give up because the harder it seems, the better the reward's going to be. Those down times when nothing's working and nothing's sticking is when we're building up our pipeline, whether we realize it or not. Just because we're not seeing the results then and there, it's so important not to just throw the towel in and give up, just carry on. I know it sounds crazy because nothing's coming of it at that point, but as long as you stick to the formula, you work hard and you don't give up, I guarantee you in the proven industry that we work in, you will succeed. And always remain honest and ethical as well. But listen to remember put this in context and guys listen to the interview we did with his partner last Thursday James put it in context they're not talking about doing gimmicky crap they're not talking about doing all this passive stuff these guys are out there actually being proactive and going after the business and obviously if you continue it you doing that even if you're not getting the the uh, the benefit, the immediate benefit, that's where most people quit, as David said so perfectly. You've got to stay with it. And if you're going to do, if you're going to do this business and you want to do it even at a low level, let alone at an ultra-high level like these guys have done, you have to be willing to do the real work. You have to be willing to do what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it at the highest level. That might mean knocking on doors. That might mean making phone calls. That might mean doing you know, the different things that basically every successful person in any industry has ever done to be successful. If you're 
you're not willing to do that work and you're just going to look for all the gimmicks and the easy buttons and the Facebook ads and the, you know, I'm going to figure out some other way to game it so I never have to do any real work, if that's the real thought that's floating around in the back of your mind, you're not going to last. You know, there's no shortcuts to success, not in real estate or not in anything else. David, I really admire you and James. I think you guys, like I said at the top of the show, you guys are, I wish, I shouldn't say this because I'll get shit for it, but I wish more Americans had the, I see this a lot with my immigrant coaching clients, and I see this a lot with, you know, just anybody who's first generation. They see America as an incredible opportunity that maybe their home countries didn't offer. They see this as their opportunity. To, they believe in the American dream, and so many Americans have just taken it for granted because we are, you know, we are born with it. And I love talking with you guys because you, you know, folks like you, because you inspire me, and I think you also inspire our listeners. I really appreciate Thank the you fact so that you. That you and James chose real estate as your careers. Uh, we love watching you guys on TV. Keep kicking some serious ass. Um, yeah. And, <laughs> and if, if someone wants to say, if so, it's been such a pleasure. Wants to, it really has been such a pleasure. Some, Sorry, carry on. It's my pleasure. If, no, no, no. If someone wants to send you a referral, which they will over time, because this is going to live forever <laughs> online. So how can they get a hold mm-hmm. of you? That's very kind of you. Um, we have uh, our website um, at www.theagencyre.com, and uh, you can see my profile, David Barnes, or James's profile, James Harris. We also have our website, www.bondstreetpartners.com, and uh, yeah, you'll find us there. You'll see our team, and, and, and I thank you very, very much, and uh, we'll look after any client you send our way. <laughs> Indeed we will. You have a fantastic day. Thank you very much for being on our show today. And listeners, listen to this podcast again and again. David did an amazing job of sharing information. I strongly challenge all of you who are listening, thinking that it's, uh, you know, that he was, he was giving you guys real factual information. He was telling you what he did. He was telling you how he did it. I think hopefully you were hearing in his voice the intensity of uh, when they were, you know, when they take these actions, feed from this, guys. Learn from this. Apply the same type of work ethic that these guys have, and you will, as he said, eventually experience the same level of success. So, David, again, thank you very much for being my co-host today. Listeners, thank have a fantastic so day. We'll talk to you on the show tomorrow. Thank you. Bye bye. This program has been a presentation by Tim and Julie Harris Real Estate Coaching. For more information on our real estate coaching and training programs, visit our website at timandjulieharris.com. Remember to tune in weekdays at noon for upcoming shows. And until next time, thank you for listening to Real Estate Coaching Radio with Tim and Julie Harris. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. Thank <laughs> you.